Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice that brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. And now the entire approach is available for you to digest online from the comfort of your own home. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook Reconditioning HQ Revolution community and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Team up with Matrix. If you're striving for that competitive edge, make sure Matrix is on your team so you have everything you need to build a winner from start to finish. With over 500 products, exclusive training tools, and years of experience, we can help you create a facility that maximizes athletic potential in new ways. We can deliver a wide range of complete programming solutions to build strength, explosiveness, speed, and agility in athletes of all kinds. Our partnerships with coaching professionals make it easy to access expert insight that enhances the way your team trains. And of course, everything Matrix is engineered and tested to meet the most stringent international standards for safety and quality. So we'll be with you season after season season for years. For more information, go to Matrix Canadian team site, teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. How would you like to increase your athletic performance and reduce your risk of injury? If this sounds good to you, please allow me to introduce you to the all-new Isofit MSK. The multi-patented Isofit MSK is the world's first full-body, portable, isometric strength training device. Since launching in November 2020, the Isofit MSK is now helping thousands of people across 18 countries live pain-free, high-performing lifestyles. Whether your goal is to enhance muscle strength and endurance, improve neuromuscular potentiation, strength strengthen tendons and bones, or enhance cardiovascular performance, the Isofit MSK does it all. To learn more about the Isofit MSK, please visit www.isofitmsk.ca. That's Isofit with a P-H-I-T, MSK.ca. Remember to use the discount code IHPS at checkout to save yourself $250 per unit. The Isofit MSK is proudly made in Canada. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Coughlin. Unfortunately, I didn't push the start button on time, so I'm going to finish reading Dan's intro and then step into the interview where I push start, which was uh, very close to the beginning, but uh, I apologize for the abruptness of the beginning. Uh, Dan is a strength and conditioning coach, physiotherapist, and applied sports scientist with an interest in golf. He is the head of strength and conditioning at the European Tour, national lead for sports science and medicine with England Golf and founder of the Golf Performance Network, a company which focuses on sports science and medicine education for all those working in or wanting to work in performance golf. He also supports the Ladies European Tour, consulting on sports science, sports medicine, and strength and conditioning. Dan further provides remote support to a number of professionals and aspiring professional players privately on a one-on-one basis. Dan has a PhD in sport and exercise medicine and is an active researcher supervising a range of PhD students. He has published across the spectrum of strength and conditioning, sports science, and sports medicine within and outside of golf. I was pleased to have him on the show. Welcome, Dan. Um, my childhood was mainly kind of lots of outdoor stuff. Like there were a few kids in the village. We used to, you know, go out, play, explore, build dens, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess in that in that respect, I was kind of fairly physically active from a young age. Um, but I wouldn't have ever really considered myself sporty. Like I played a few sports and things, but nothing major. And I don't know if I had, when I was young, I could say I had any particular aspirations you know I think most kids go through a journey of you know I want to be a soldier I want to be a fireman I want to be a police I don't know whatever and so I'm sure I went through all that but I I never had a grand plan 
Um, and I didn't actually really get into sort of sport properly until I was maybe in my later teens. Mm. Um, so it was something I kind of discovered later on and slowly evolved into an interest in, in physiotherapy, sports medicine, and, and kind of went from there really. So what instigated um, yeah, that, the grand plan. what instigated that interest when you were in your teens? Well, I suppose while I was physically active, I wasn't particularly fit actually. So when I was at, um, at school, I was always kind of last on sports day, and um, I, you know, I did rubbish on things like the bleep test, and we did that with everyone else. And I, you know, I, I spent my time doing other things. Um, yeah, I'd play, but I wasn't really like sporty. I wasn't in sports clubs and things. And uh, I, I think when I was about fifteen or so, I just decided I wanted to get a bit fitter. Uh, one of my best mates had taken up cycling, and someone he spent a lot of time around. He was doing kind of a computer science thing, and one of his mentors gave him a a road bike and he also had his granddad's road bike which he gave my mate as well so he had two two bikes um so we decided to jump on the bikes and go explore and i remember my first bike ride was into that um town that i was talking about which was around 10 miles or so away and i uh, it, it totally flattened me that bike ride we we went out i came home like crawling back had you know we still laugh about it had this kind of jam and, and banana sandwich and um eventually got home and uh, from there I kind of got more into sports while so cycling I was running um I, I got fitter and fitter and just more interested in it and then like you do when you get into running you start to pick up a few injuries um so I started to see physios from time to time and there I kind of started to connect the dots like I enjoyed the sport I enjoyed the triathlon that I started to get into from from you know the cycling the running etc and then I started to see these people working with with injured sports people and I was like oh these these two worlds seem quite interesting and um that kind of took me on a bit of a journey um through sports science physiotherapy and and kind of beyond so yeah it's, it's been mm -hmm. interesting what uh, when you look back and maybe you've never done that before but how did not being sporty um and you when you're long, younger sort of serve you in what you do now or do you think it serves you in some way um I'm, yeah it's an interesting question that it's not one that I've necessarily thought of before and um, I think it, it partly fueled some of my attitudes towards maybe work and not just that actually but other things that are kind of similar to that in 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 kind of previous experiences when I was younger I think made me kind of ultra competitive to prove to myself or others most others don't care but you still kind of get ingrained into it sometimes that oh look I can do this and I can mm. be sporty and I can be successful at this stuff so I think in part it kind of it drove me to try and be a bit of an extreme of how I used to see myself maybe. Mm. Um, but then also I think it gave, it, it gives me a degree of understanding uh, of why people might not always just be sporty and play sports and be in sports teams and mm. all that kind of stuff, because, you know, I wasn't just always around it. What was your greatest strength as a kid? Do you think when you look back? Um, Oh, uh, again, I think I think it's something that stuck with stuck with me, which is kind of perseverance and hmm. sort of determination to work hard. Like when I was when I was younger, I was quite a late developer. I'd say both kind of physically in so much that I didn't find sport until later, but also, um, I guess, cognitively as well. So hmm. I was a little bit slower at primary school I was kind of a bit behind in the first few years of of high school as well um so I kind of learned to dig in and work hard and uh, you know sort of suffer through it a bit if you know what I mean mm -hmm. and then when when things started to catch up a little bit and I started to get into my flow I think that I still maintain some of those um those kind of attributes which mm -hmm. which I think I still use to this day quite a lot actually very cool. So then you, did you go directly into physiotherapy school or did you find that circuitously? Like, obviously there was an interest in injuries and things that you were talking about. So what was your first station, so to speak, in education? Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't fully committed to the physio thing. And I also knew if I was going to do physio, I would probably want to do it from like a sports angle. Mm. And physiotherapy in the UK is very... Um, NHS based sorry that's my dog in the background and no um, is very yeah it's very NHS based you do a lot of hospital type work um so I did sports science degree first basically um okay. and then from the sports science degree I went into physiotherapy as kind of a master's um, mm. kind of hoping to to mix the two backgrounds 
Well, that's that's uh, that's really cool because you don't necessarily always hear it that way. It usually is the rever- reverse order. So, how did you, doing a sports science degree serve you going into your physiotherapy degree? Did you question things more? Did you find yourself wondering, um, sort of asking the why question more often about some of the things that were being taught to you? Yeah, I think it did. It did impact me in some of those ways. Um, so again, physiotherapy wasn't very exercise based. Um, mm. Both kind of exercise in terms of here is an exercise to do to fix you or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but also exercise based in just terms of physical activity and health promotion. Um, I think again because of the kind of NHS background to things and also just where physio was at the time, um, it, it, it kind of didn't have that built in. So I felt like that background gave me an appreciation of where I needed to look and how I needed to think outside of just what I was being taught. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also just doing an undergrad before learning a clinical professional skill like that meant Mm -hmm. that I was a little bit more mature by the time I hit it. Mm -hmm. So when I was going into hospitals to gain experience, I had some, not loads, but some life experience and some context um, to what I was seeing. And then I think actually, I'm sure we'll get onto this. I think it, it kind of majorly influenced how I went from being a physio sort of back into working in sports and strength and conditioning because then I had to refine and, and mix those two worlds. Well, I'm curious why you felt you needed to do it. Like, um, was what was the instigator for you to say, okay, I've come out of this sports science degree. Obviously, you've biased in some ways to the strength conditioning end of it after taking the physio uh, um, professional, you know, acumen, et cetera. What did you, what was saying to you, I still need to do this versus I'm just going to go into strength conditioning? Well, I think at the time I didn't necessarily want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I, did, I actually never sort of foresaw that happening. Okay. Um, I so I was a triathlete. I was into exercise physiology. I was my sports science interests were much more in you know cycling, running, um, a bit of biomechanics, you know, so physiology and a bit of biomechanics around those things. And I, I kind of saw myself as taking a sports science route or a physiology route. Um, sorry, a, a physiology route or a, a physiotherapy route. And then I kind of took the physiotherapy route, essentially. Mm. And, I, you know, strength and conditioning wasn't on the radar. And exercise physiology was kind of one of the two options. But actually, I went with with physiotherapy instead. Mm. And it was only later that I, I found strength and conditioning, I guess. Okay. So you come out, you finish your physio degree. What are you doing while you're in it to, to become a, are you practicing? Are you trying? Are you doing things? Are you instigating use of this in sport or anything? Or what, are you just going to school? What's your, your approach at that time? Yeah. So I, I was very conscious. So I knew I wanted to get into sport. I knew I didn't want to work for the NHS. Um, so I, did all the things that everyone had to do in in school and also from a a placement and experience perspective in hospitals and things. Um, But alongside that, I was doing lots of voluntary work in sport. Um, One of the main places that I was volunteering actually was with a pro cycling team Mm. Um, because I was triathlete, cyclist, runner. I thought that was where I wanted to go. And um, I, yeah, I just thought that's, that looks like a fun sport. I'll do lots of that. And it was great for experience. It gave me loads of really cool experiences, but I also started to realize I didn't want to work in the sports that I enjoyed because it made my enjoyment of the sport outside of that voluntary time or how I saw that might eventually be a job, um, less enjoyable. Um, Mm. so I was like, actually it'd be nice to work in a different sport. So Then at the weekend I can go for a bike ride and not have been surrounded by cyclists all day. How did your triathlon journey inform your future practice in some sense? Because you're in predominantly endurance-based sports, you're they're very cyclical in nature. You're, you know, train. You have to work through, you know, fear, stress, all these different things, loads, etc. So, how how did you find that informed you moving forward? Um, yeah, again, great questions, and I think I for me, I just. 
again, not having come from such a sporty background, I think it made me realize how passionate people could be about the sport that they enjoyed, mm. whether it be for recreational or professional purposes. Because, of course, I didn't start just working with professionals and no one else. Like I was working with enthusiasts when I when I started working. So I could understand how people could really get the bug for any sport, basically. Um, I think also when I, and again, this might go more into like further down the career, but when I started working in golf specifically, so I started to specialize in a sport, I feel like I took a lot of lessons from a different sport essentially um, because you know if I had just gone from triathlon to working with triathletes and cyclists I would just be in their world and their way of thinking but mm-hmm. going into golf I was like oh you do that differently and why don't you do this and it kind of yeah brought a different perspective to the table which I think was helpful. Mm. Tell me about I, I I wasn't sure when I read the thing that you said about the thousand miles or kilometers or whatever of tri what is it, was it that you did a triathlon every day for a certain number of days in a row? So, yeah, so, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, so what was just that a few, uh, journey? Yeah, a few things I've been up to. So I've done I've done obviously Ironman and stuff like that. So I've done okay. five I think it's five Ironman now, okay. but separately, not back to back or anything crazy like that. Um, <laughs> but then I did a uh, so in in England so uh, John O'Groats and Lands End are basically the two tips of the UK. Okay. Um, so if you look at a map of the UK, like very top left, oh sorry, very top right, there's a like tip to it, um, which is at the very top of Scotland. And then if you go down to the bottom left, there's that kind of pointy bit. Mm. And they're the sort of two most distant parts of the UK. Uh, so it's quite a common challenge for cyclists to decide that they want to cycle from one to the other. Okay. Um, so me and, and a couple of my mates kind of moved, got right up to the tip and we cycled um, from one end of the UK to the other end. In, um, in a week and we did that like several several years ago and it was it was great fun actually proper like expedition style <laughs> feel about it <laughs> what if, what did you learn about yourself in doing these things that are kind of somewhat superhuman obviously they're not the things that everybody does but uh, but you know you you're you're testing yourself what did you test in yourself and learn about yourself yeah I think so I speak to one of my, so my, my best friend is, um, uh, the guy who got me into cycling was still really close. He was the best man at my wedding. We chat all the time. He, he's a CEO of a big um, health tech company. He really, really kind of smart, successful guy, PhD as well uh, in computer science. And we, we often talk about this because he did, um, he's done ultra marathon with me with, he kind of helped me with this Land's End to John O'Groats. He didn't do the whole thousand miles, but he kind of started us off because he lives in Scotland. And he's done the Ironman with me as well. Mm. And um, we, we both kind of talk about how the sorts of mindset that I think endurance sport builds are the sorts of mindset that can be quite useful in other other kind of mm. walks of life. Your ability to endure, your ability to suffer, your ability to look kind of beyond the the current situation for the potential future gain that you can get out of that. Um, you know, that kind of delayed gratification almost. Um, and we, we often talk about like second class fun, like second class fun being something you hate in the moment, but you're going to love later down the line. And I think those sorts of attributes have kind of helped with all sorts of things, you know, PhD, seeing the long game in the career and kind of working towards, um, you know, getting onto the tour jobs and that sort of thing or, um, or the endurance work, but just having that mindset of like, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to endure something for a long period of time. Um, if, if there's kind of a, you know, enough of a motivation at the end. Mm -hmm. Cool. So how, how do you get interested in golf? Um, yeah, total accident. So I, I left, I wanted to be a sports physio. Like I said, um, I continued volunteering in lots of sports. Uh, so I worked with the Scotland lacrosse team. Um, I worked with the cycling team. I continued to do that. I did some track and field stuff. I did some football stuff like, or, or soccer, like all the usual sort of sampling voluntary trying to get experience. So I can apply for a role type stuff. Mm. Um, and alongside that, I set up just a little clinic in a gym near where I lived um which just happened to have a a quite decent golf course on it and a few decent players there and so a couple of the coaches started to get me to work with some of their players and also I started working with lots of recreational golfers as well because they were coming into the club and they had sort of normal aches and pains and things like that and then England 
golf had a regional um, strength and conditioning physical preparation type post come up, except they called it physiotherapy because the background of golf was that physios did the physical preparation, usually not quite as well as strength and conditioning coaches might, but it was just kind of how it, how it evolved mm. for various reasons. So I applied for this physio from regional squads post and I got it. And then I very quickly realized, I think this is where the sports science kicks in. Like I realized that I didn't know enough about what I was being asked to do. And I realized the job wasn't a physio job, hmm. um, which isn't to say physios couldn't do it. It's just, I had lots of knowledge gaps. And I think I knew that because the sports science had allowed me to know enough about strength and conditioning and physiology to know that a physio wasn't well equipped to do this without learning a lot more. Mm. Um, so then I sort of started to pursue my education around strength and conditioning. Um, and I wanted, to, I'd wanted to do a PhD for some time and it kind of gave me an excuse to, to look at that. Cause when I was educating myself, I realized there wasn't much research in the area of golf. Um, so then I started a, a PhD and largely around strength and conditioning in golf. Mm. What did you discover about the traditional, um, approach to it and recognize that, the hole in there and where you could make a difference as you were going through this process. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting. So the, the background in, in golf um, strength and conditioning or physical preparation was, was very kind of physio slash chiropractor slash medical led. And it meant that a lot of the sort of tradition was to, and I think ultimately it was because some physios and medical people got into that job first. They were like, oh, it looks like there's an opportunity here and we'll, we'll kind of set some stuff up. And what I'd noticed was that they took the kind of medical approach of working with the patient, like, you know, completing an objective physical exam or screenings and things and giving very specific solutions like mm. this is how to fix this shoulder thing this is how to fix this knee thing um without necessarily looking at and understanding the whole how to train an athlete piece to that um so they'd have kind of their screenings and then they would have lots of exercises that they'd be asked to do to fix the screening results without necessarily the kind of more whole understanding of how to train the athlete and obviously there's a place for all of those things they're not necessarily bad you know working with physios or therapists doing some screenings finding some bespoke solutions uh, obviously have a place mm-hmm. but in golf it was it seemed to be the whole piece of the puzzle and everything else was kind of missing um so yeah that was where i realized things were happening and i also realized that things weren't happening in that other space and that that was the other space that i felt like i needed to fill i guess what were you what were you falling in love with over this process of you know becoming who you've become what what did you fall in love with is it the innovation is it the problem solving is it the service of others what what are you in love with reconditioninghq.com is announcing the creation of the r pro series there are now four steps to becoming a reconditioning professional it all starts with our signature course r1 foundations that sets you up with this unique holistic approach to integrating the power of therapeutic practice and performance practice this course as well as the second course in our series r2 designs is completely online you can register and digest all the content from the comfort of your own home each course comes with a zoom lab experience where we take all the information and work with you to ensure you completely understand how to align it with your own practice. The third step, the R3 experience. This is a complete eight-week mentorship online where we go deep on the entire process and make certain you are prepared to succeed. Finally, we'll be releasing our first R4 collab sometime near the end of 2021. This will be an incredible live event where we use collaborative teaching design to manipulate the process with you and everyone in attendance so that everyone learns the nuances of the reconditioning process and leave being prepared to call yourself a reconditioning professional. For more information on all our courses, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out reconditioninghq.com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offering. You want data? We've got data. 
You can now add real-time biometric testing and data monitoring to your Isofit MSK. Thanks to our partnership with Kinvent, you can easily transform your Isofit MSK into a state-of-the-art testing and training platform. Monitoring your athlete's progress has never been easier. With the K-Force Isofit Pack, you can easily send real-time acoustic and optic biofeedback to your smartphone or tablet. To learn more about the Isofit MSK and K-Force Isofit Pack, visit www.isofitphitmsk.ca today. Matrix Fitness Canada partners with coach Mark Fitzgerald to oversee its athletic performance program across the country. Mark is based in Kelowna, BC, with operations in multiple provinces serving athletes and families of various age groups. Most recently, the strength and conditioning coach for the Anaheim Ducks. Mark is also the head of performance and owns Elite Training Systems, a high-performance training center that caters to athletes across multiple sports. Matrix Fitness views all of us as athletes, and it is our goal to make better movement and fitness accessible to all. The Matrix Fitness Canada performance team will assist with program development, space and facility consults, and developing outreach programs for organizations who train competitive athletes and athletes at heart. Matrix Fitness has a full portfolio of fitness, performance, and medical equipment and programs designed to serve various populations. For more information on how Matrix can help with your objectives, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. Yeah, so I think the the thing that really attracted me to to golf and the thing I've fallen in love with working in golf is the fact that it just seemed so underdeveloped and I I enjoyed the process of having to like figure everything out you know I kind of went in and I was like okay well this isn't a very good system at the moment I need to figure out what a good system is I need to learn from other sports other people I need to look to the research I then identified that there's not enough research there I need to develop some research and understand that and I kind of had to build my system of practice I guess Mm -hmm. and then when I went from those kind of England regional squads to the national squad because I then sort of got a job as the national lead for physiotherapy at the time actually so we had Nick Ward who who works at Altis was doing the um, lead strength and conditioning role and I was doing the lead physiotherapy role um, for a bit and we both went into that and it was like ground zero as well and we had to build the whole England system Um, and then the same thing happened on the tour the European tour got in touch with me and said hey we like what you're doing in England can you build a system for us and then now the the new project is the ladies european tour who have got in touch and said hey we like what you're doing on the european tour can you do that for us and it feels like every step of the way i've had to build something from scratch and that's been really good fun and i don't know if i would have got the same enjoyment if i'd gone into a more developed sport you know if i'd Mm -hmm. gone to say track and field which is quite quite developed um i'm not saying i wouldn't have enjoyed it but I wouldn't have enjoyed it for the same reasons. I can't imagine. Cool. What, what, um, when, you know, you talk about the European side of things, obviously there's the American side of things. It's a big driver in in pro golf. Um, what have you viewed with your binoculars or with uh, your own travel, et cetera, and has sort of taken away from or experienced from what they're doing in the States or, or in other influential, influential places in golf? Yeah, I, I think, the overwhelming um, sort of piece is that it's just developing at a quite a serious rate at the moment. Like the interest in physical preparation is developing at quite a serious, a serious rate. And you can turn to the PGA tour and you can see that with, you know, some of the big names out there at the moment, um, whether that be, you know, several years ago with, with Tiger Woods or whether that now, now be with Bryson, like there's a clear trajectory into interest around physical prep. Um, the Australians have been doing it for quite some time as well. And they have quite a serious uh, attitude towards their physical preparation. A lot of the Europeans are moving forward when we go to compete in Europe at amateur level. Um, some of the European sort of elite amateurs, like pre-professionals are, are really quite athletic. Um, and it's, and it's not just their training, it's everything. It's, you know, dealing with jet lag, eating better, being healthier just how they look after themselves the the sport is moving on and 
the the players are becoming more athletic in how they approach things mm. um and it just seems to be a theme across the globe which is which is cool it's a good time to be involved do you notice any like fundamental like one of the things i've noticed over the years in having worked in different sports is there are sort of cultural differences in the way an athlete kind of is scripted or built in say europe versus what you see in north america and even there's differences i'm in canada between canadian and american developmental schema etc you know as an example if we take uh, a footballer in in England, you've got the academy process. You've got all this sort of, you know, the way an athlete's developed to play soccer. And, and it's different in North America. It's kind of, you know, you play lots of different sports of the big four and then you kind of discover things. And, you know, it, it's very different. So I'm kind of curious, uh, have you noticed a difference in the way a European golfer kind of comes into and is developed versus a North American golfer? Or, or is it more homogeneous? No, there are there are differences. I think so. Even within Europe, there are quite significant differences. So, with I'd say, if you take England as an example, I, I'm obviously biased. I think the national system is quite good, um, <laughs> and we develop quite, or we try and develop quite athletic golfers who are strong and explosive and all the rest of it. But I'd say that there's still an attitude in England, contrary to say certainly the US or the players that I've experienced in the US, which is that their kind of default isn't necessarily to want that. Mm. There are obviously exceptions to that rule, but we've, we've got the good system, but we haven't necessarily got the right attitudes in the players at the moment, which means that actually when the players engage with our system, they become some of the best athletes on tour. But if you look at the average English player that's just turned professional, actually they're not always in the best of shape. Not, not I don't think as a fault of the... the the system maybe as a fault of uh, you know a lack of ability to support them 24 7 but you know mm-hmm. they're, they're, they've kind of opted out of of really pushing that on despite the resource sometimes um so i think the culture shift in england still needs to happen and some sometimes i find what happens when the english players go to the u.s because a lot of them go to the into the college system for a few years in the u.s is that they get quite a quick um kick to need to sort themselves out because actually the culture in the us and the us college system often pushes them into the weight room a bit harder and because singling in the english system they don't get us all the time we see them for occasional camps but then they're largely left to their own devices between time in the us college system they go to training multiple times per week and they have us players around them all the time they they often report not exclusively you know different systems in different colleges are different but they often report like this sudden culture shock where they're like oh training is important and these us players and this us system is kind of forcing me to move on a little bit Mm. Um, and then, you know, within Europe, we, we certainly see different approaches. Um, certain nationalities are very kind of like less developed with their strength and conditioning and lifting and building explosive, powerful athletes. And they can be a little bit less evidence-based and, or, or some can be a bit more like movement orientated and screening orientated and others can, you know, like you, you see diversity across, across those different um, areas of Europe as well. Um, But the other thing I've noticed is even the U S colleges can vary quite a lot in how they approach golfers because it's not one of the big four, you know, sometimes they get a, great level of support and sometimes it's less and sometimes they have a really good strength and conditioning approach and sometimes it's a bit diluted down and not quite mm. as as developed as it could be um so, so our players that go out there generally have a good experience but it's not always the case hmm. so what informs your your research then your desire to do a phd you, you said that there wasn't a lot of research in the game so what what did you sort of eyeball as an area that needed to get sorted out in your viewpoint? Yeah, I, um, I felt that really we just needed a basic understanding of do a few sort of simple things work and what matters and mm. um, in terms of physical prep. So a lot of it, like I said, was originally screening based. Um, there wasn't much in the way of understanding, you know, how explosive and how strong a player needed to be, the effects of strength and explosive strength on distance, um, the effects of warm ups on like distance and quality of strike and that kind of stuff. Um, 
so I was kind of interested in that because that was kind of the strength and conditioning bit that I didn't understand, you know, mm-hmm. what the players need to develop, how should they develop it and things like that. Um, but when I was doing the PhD and also beyond, I've also, I've always tried to work within the constraints of the work environment because I did things alongside, you know, I could did the PhD alongside the work and I wanted to sort of solve problems. And at the time I was mainly seeing young players. So I was interested in younger players rather than developed professionals. Um, and I was also interested in the constraints. Like we didn't have much equipment in England, but we had lots of space, you know, we'd be at golf clubs and things. Whereas other research I've done when we went on to research with the tour, we had the budget for force plates and equipment but we didn't have much space because you know media and things are around and you have to kind of shelter the players and do the testing in small spaces sometimes um so i I kind of tried to get the research to fit in the context of the environments that i was working in as well Mm -hmm. where do you lie on the now that you've gone through this experiential process and and worked with developmental athletes and worked with pro athletes where do you lie on this spectrum of over specialization, more diversity in athleticism, et cetera, in that developmental context. It's like, what have you discovered in that? And, and how do you sort of do, how do you do development now with your athletes, comparatively speaking, maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, I think. Um, so first off, I think it just seems to be like, there seems to be so many ways to be successful that mm-hmm. obviously you could say, well, the ideal maybe is not to, not to specialize too early. I think, especially in a sport like golf, where you have quite a late peak and you have quite a long career, you can obviously sample lots of sports beforehand. You can build general athleticism and then you can sort of specialize over time. But, you know, I've seen very successful players who have specialized early and very successful players who have not specialized so early. And I've seen, you know, the negative consequences of both sometimes as well. And um, ultimately, I I think it's very much like um, just trying to treat each individual as an individual and and Mm. solve for the case in front of you rather than just give like a sweeping solution to to all. Um, So that's certainly one part. But then I think the second part and something that we're quite big on within the definitely the England system, which is more the developmental system versus say the tour is rather than looking at um, like quantitative outcomes all the time, we're very into understanding positive behaviors. So if we look at the um, objectives of the regional programs so in England, we have a regional program, which takes you from anywhere from say 12, 13 years old up to say 16 to 18 years old, depending on which bit of the pathway you're in by the time you come out of that and then join the national system, which might be, you know, 18 to twenties or so, all we want out of the regional pathway are like a set of behaviors and they're quite simple. So we ask that the players warm up. So they have a suitable warm up that they can do before they play, before they practice, before they train in the gym. And they're just able to do that. And they do that regularly. We ask that they come to the gym a couple of times a week and they know their way around the gym and they can adapt to different environments. So if we threw them into a fully kitted out weight room, they could run a program. If they had dumbbells only, they could run a program. If they had no kit and they're in a hotel, they could run a program. Um, we ask that they know how to come to a squad session, what food to bring with them to see them through the day, knowing what else they've got available. And they, they just have like a strategy to eat on the course as well. So when they're at a competition or when they're practicing 18 holes, they just kind of know what to eat and they've got the stuff they need in their bag. And then if they come to like warm weather training, they know how to use their downtime effectively. So if we're there for a week and we said, oh, you've got the afternoon off, they kind of know what they could do to help themselves ready for the next day. Mm. And those those are obviously like high level behaviors and underneath that we can underpin it with lots of detail and that's very kind of individual um but ultimately that's the objective of the program it's like if you can come out of your regional pathway of four or five years and you can just do those things we're really happy and we don't really care how much weight you lift or what your force numbers are or how far you hit it because that's that's kind of out of our control through development isn't it with you know different stages of biological maturity or um or whatever so yeah cool well 
along those lines, actually, on your own personal side, what have been some of your own behaviors slash tactics for navigating your career in some sense? Like what, what do you do on a regular basis? You're obviously have accomplished a PhD, you're working in high performance sport, et cetera. I like, I love interviewing people who are sort of in that middle stage of their career um, and kind of seeing, you know, how have you, how have you accomplished you at this point and what, what has brought success to you in some sense? Yeah, I think, um, I like you say, kind of middle stage, I've still got loads more to achieve, work towards and figure out. So this, I guess this isn't probably the same answer I'll give in a few years time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, uh, at the moment, I think a couple of the things that I found really important, and I'm sure many people would say the same, is that like one is the the kind of... Um, the importance of just putting yourself out there sometimes. Like I, I didn't pick a sport that I wanted to work in. I didn't say, I just want to work in soccer. I just want to work in track and field, or I just want to work in cycling. I was like, I'll just try a bunch of stuff and I'll see what sticks. I never would have picked golf. I don't play it. I, I wouldn't have been interested in it. And now I love it. So just putting yourself out there, trying loads of different things, sampling, you know, it's a bit like not early specializing in your career, but like sampling lots of stuff. Um, and that goes for sports like you know working in a range of sports but I think it also goes for other things as well like doing a bit of research doing research inside and outside of the sport I work in um going to have experiences with other people so maybe spend some time with some people in some other sports or some other um areas of interest even if it's just for discussion or to shadow or whatever is like that um and yeah just doing lots of different things I think is really good um Obviously, I've taught I've taught a bit in academia as well. So I've I lectured at University of Essex, which is a local university, and also UCL in London. I'm on their sports medicine program, and UCL is pretty top uni. I think top ten in the world. So decent dis, decent uni. Learned loads of pe- loads of really interesting people. So yeah, loads and loads of different experiences. I think are big. And then I think the other thing um, was definitely around like trying to just build relationships with lots and lots of people Mm. and try and lift other people up and also and always give time to other people sort of both ways you kind of hope if you give time other people might give time to you and I've been very fortunate with say in uh, sorry the European tour where I I the performance lead for the European tour spent a lot of time with me when I was figuring out the England systems purely because I said oh I just got this England golf job and I don't really know what I'm doing can I have some help and they chatted with me and they gave me their time and that led to opportunities for me and I try and do that in return to other people as well and and Mm. support them and 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 like I say just try and lift everyone up and create great relationships and it's interesting because I get I get a lot of questions now I've got the European tour job and the England job about like oh how do I get a job with you and with it being a consultancy type setup we don't put out to advert in the way that you would if it was an employed role we essentially headhunt people that we think are going to be really good at the job so the best thing that you can do is build loads of relationships in sport because it will open up doors Mm. Um, whether you kind of like that system or not that's the system we're often in isn't it so I think sampling lots of things building lots of relationships trying to build everyone up and bring everyone forward with you um are things that are very important um yeah i think those awesome um off the back of the presentation that around sharing and sort of giving of yourself to a degree i'm kind of i want to sort of navigate into that a little bit and first i want to start with you know you you've kind of grown professionally in a in a space where the internet has been proliferating the information you know that's being spit out into the world is so available i grew up in a different era when it wasn't as available and you were having to you know travel fly whatever to go and hang with somebody and there was a different sort of sharing mechanism there so now you've got this sort of people are spewing information out so there's two questions here one is what's your sieve for that and making sure you're not overwhelmed by all of it and then from that how do you then make sort of selective decisions around who you want to go and spend your time with or where you want to go and connect or you know how you're going to because it in some ways nowadays it can be almost overwhelming as to where you want to put your energy into the information network that's out there yeah i think the 
great questions. Uh, in terms of the filter, like I think one of the things for me, although it's by no means not the the solution, and I think the the more experienced I become, the more I realise it's not the solution, but in in its entirety, is is understanding evidence and research, and um, essentially being a, able to be. Um, I suppose, positive or critical, but in a helpful way, you know, not mm. destructively critical, but just having that that underlying filter of evidence, research, science, underpinning stuff that just allows you to cut out a lot of the nonsense. You're still left with an overwhelming amount of information, but it just works as that first, I guess, I guess defense or barrier to, to silly stuff sort of creeping through. Mm-hmm. And then that allows you to focus the time on what's left, um, but you know, like you say, beyond that, it becomes very difficult. I think you just have to be, um, maybe mindful about what you want to get out of a particular period of investigating something, which isn't to be like completely closed off from other opportunities and other things, but you might think, why well, over this next period, I want to understand more about whatever topic area that might be of interest you use a bit of understanding of like or critical understanding of research and science to to filter down to a few few people or a few things that might be helpful in that and then you spend your time on that i think it's very easy to get distracted and sort of bounce around a lot isn't it around lots of different topics mm-hmm. um so yeah i might just think oh, i want to develop this over the next little period and, and focus on that um i think then the 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 next thing is probably using your network to try and understand and assimilate things or mm. to um, direct you towards good or bad things, if you know what I mean. And so something that I'm finding particularly effective for that at the moment is um, me and one of my old colleagues who I worked with in lacrosse, like back in the early days, we've set up a like cross-pollination group where we have a few people from different sports with different experiences and backgrounds. And we meet months, once a month and we just talk about stuff. Mm. And uh, we tend to, off the back of that, have a few things that we agree to go away and read or look at or think about or reflect on um, and just kind of consolidate and direct our thinking each mm. month, really. Mm. Um, so that helps having like a, a group of people around you that sort of support you in in that process. Mm. Um, I think that's the first part of your question, which was the sieving. There was a second part. Can you remind me? Um, it's kind of being selective about your decision to put what well, I think you sort of answered it in that, in the sense of how you addressed it, but where you want to focus your energy to specialize in a particular, you know, space or context of what you feel is missing or is your gap analysis in essence, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that is, yeah, I guess partially answered but it is that isn't it it's understanding where your your kind of gap is that you need to develop and i think actually having some sort of loose example of where you or or idea of where you want your career to go Mm. you know like when i reached out to the european tour to ask for help because i just got a job with england golf that wasn't just because i wanted help although of course part of it was that i wanted help the other part was that i was i was thinking well i can now use this england golf position as a platform to build a relationship with the european tour which is kind of the next step up and if i'm effective at building that relationship then it might open doors in the future mm-hmm. so by kind of being mindful about where i might want things to go over the next couple of years i can I can be selective in that regard because there are lots of people I could have gone to for help, but mm-hmm. they made sense from like a career perspective as well as a help perspective. Mm. How have you, um, you know, what I find usually in interviewing uh, people in your stage of your career, sometimes you've, you've gone all and I've been there, you've gone all into what you're doing and it sort of has occupied you in a sense. So how have you maybe strategically or, or unstrategically made sure, you know, I don't like the word balance, but at least strikes a chord with people when you sort of ask that question, balanced out, you know, your career craft, et cetera, versus your, you know, who is Dan and what does Dan want to do outside of golf or whatever else it is that you do? Yeah. So I've been hopeless at that for the last (laughs) few years. Um, And I'm very aware that I've been hopeless at it. Um, So I I feel like, and again, I've, I've had chats with my, my computer science friend about this as well, because he's, he's um, 
like this multi-million pound startup, very successful guy. And he's clearly going through his sort of thirties in a similar way to me, even or probably times 10. And both of us have very much felt like we've sacrificed a portion of our, our kind of um, social uh, family life and stuff for the furtherment of our careers for a little while and the, mm. our understanding and craft and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we often talk about how like balance doesn't necessarily mean everything has to be balanced at the same time. It means that you can kind of get balance over the course of time, over a mm-hmm. you know over a decade, over a few years, over a week, whatever it might mean might be you can have a very unbalanced day or month or year and then make it up at the times I guess and I feel like to get where I've gotten so far which you know by, by no means is like crazy stuff but just just where it is it's required a certain amount of or a certain lack of balance I'd say and had I not have had that lack of balance I potentially wouldn't have achieved what I've achieved Mm -hmm. so far because going through the England stuff the European tour stuff developing the services there finishing the PhD um you know working at a top university all those things came at a sacrifice and you Mm -hmm. just couldn't do it without the sacrifice um Having said that, recently the PhD's finished. Um, a few months ago, or um, yeah, a couple of months ago, I stopped working at UCL, which was quite a high-pressure job at a nice kind of top institution. Like that was very tough, quite draining. Um, and now I'm focusing solely on the sports stuff and my own career, like my my kind of self-employed side of my career, or my own business. Um, that started to leave me with a little bit more headspace for other things. Mm. Um, so I suppose I'm now at the point where I'm thinking like oh what actually goes on outside of my career or work life and yeah I guess I'm going to be exploring that over the next couple of years. Very cool I like to analogize it like a graphic equalizer and I think your you know your mid-range your bass your treble all these things are going to be up and down different but are you actually listening to the music you know mm-hmm. and have you noticed that now the beat has changed and are you you know turning up turning down that's you know I think as you become more aware connected to that you have a better success profile over time i'm going to read to you uh, your uh, i don't know if you ever listened to my podcast but i have this book called the day you were born it was written by a astrologer in new york named linda joyce and she combines numerology with astrology and i sort of read everybody's purpose to them so whether you believe in it or not is inconsequential it's just fun um so you're march 19th correct just want to make yep, sure I get the right. Yeah. So your Pisces one. So your purpose is to achieve the confidence and discipline necessary to be fully independent and turn your excess charm into etern- ex- eternal rewards. The undertaking of a new action brings new strength. Avinius, Roman writer. Pisces ones have the ability to be physically, mentally, and spiritually strong, but if they hide from life, they may suffer from physical ailments, confusion, and chaos. They need a purpose and lots of discipline. Competitive Pisces ones can drive themselves relentlessly to be the best along the way, acquiring luxuries that suit their exquisite taste. If Neptune is strong, Pisces ones may suffer from a series of annoying illnesses, feel as if they are victims of circumstances and shun possessions and beautiful things because they prefer the spiritual path. Masters at creating the world according to their vision, the Pisces ones need self-confidence. They must learn to be spontaneous and adaptable. They must learn not to let fear make them rigid or control keep their world small and isolated. Many exhibit both extremes and overconfidence that hides a deep-rooted insecurity. Pisces ones have big, generous hearts. They demand respect and seek soulmates. Pisces ones can have trouble with relationships because they hate restraint and tend to see a partner idealistically. They must learn to let go of fear and risk. Pisces ones are meant to experience life with zest and passion, not pessimism and doubt. So I don't know if any of that resonates with you. But. Yeah, nice. It's, um, yeah, there's a few things in there, definitely. I need to work on my excess charm, I think, but um, otherwise... <laughs> Beautiful. I'll ask Nick Ward about that when I talk to him next. Um, this takes me into sort of uh, to to bring this to more of a conclusion is to come back to your presentation. And your overreaching message was to be somebody who shares. What's the value proposition in sharing for the listener? Why share what you know and talk about what you know and expose what you know or don't know to people around you? What do you see as the value proposition to that? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I guess for the, for the listeners who probably didn't listen to the talk, so essentially what it was was about how um, when you go through your journey, for me it was this kind of work journey, it was important that lots of phases I shared what I was doing so that people could... Um, I guess, look onto it critically and give me feedback, learn from it. And also I could learn through the process of sharing. So by mm -hmm. writing something or by talking about something, I had to learn about it more deeply. And I was, I was kind of talking about how there are lots of ways to share a course as well. So it could be a conversation with someone and a meeting with a group of people. It could be writing a blog. It could be publishing a research paper. So I was kind of talking about the, the whole spectrum of, of, of sharing. And for me, I think the, the value proposition is really quite broad. I think there's a lot to be gained from it. Um, first off, the process of having to share stuff, whether it's on to a one-to-one -one level, whether it's you know through a blog, whether it's through a quite detailed research paper, whatever it is, I think you have to think deeply about what you're talking about, um, either in the moment or after the moment or you know before it goes to publication and that causes you that forces you to understand your situation better or understand your views um, values whatever it might be better and I think part of that comes because obviously to produce a good product whatever that product is whether it's a blog a conversation or, or research paper you have to put in the time but also I think by sharing it you know other people are going to look at it judge it think about it and that forces you to do something well I um, mean mm. yeah, if I was just going to write something and leave it on my computer I wouldn't even have to finish it you know whereas if I know I'm going to put it somewhere and then people are going to look at it it has to be good mm. so I think by sharing you, you learn more. And that's probably one of the big things. Um, and then I suppose, you know, value to me as well is that I build relationships. I extend my network. Um, I get feedback from other people who help me iterate and improve myself or my practice. And I think that's really important as well. And then, of course, there's the value to the other people who aren't you, you know, the person who maybe wants to learn from your journey, learn from your situation, which, you know, presumably in part is what this podcast is about. And mm -hmm. um, you want to help other people in some small way to, to improve themselves. And that's by no means to say that you have to have all the answers. You just have a perspective, mm -hmm. but that perspective, sometimes parts of it will resonate with others. So I think there's value to yourself and there's value to others. Um, and, and ultimately I think it's a really important thing to do. And it's, it's something I'm trying to actually get better at as well, because, you know, I'm by no means perfect for the last little while. I've been focusing a lot on, on research and I've also been focusing a lot on um, developing the, the services, so sharing my work within my work environments or to people who are related to the work that I do. And now I'm starting to think more broadly about how I can engage with others positively and in a broader sense. Um, and again, not just me telling people stuff, but me learning from people as well. It's very much two-way street. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, I think that's the value in general. You mentioned a few things at the end of your talk about as sort of instigating, I think it was five things for people to try, but of those things or other things that you've done to share, what, is, what has been one that you were actually more fearful of doing or had doubt in yourself and overcame and how did you overcome that or how did you sort of push yourself over that barrier? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's happened a lot of, it happens every time really, but I think the the, mo the more interesting one was probably the social media thing, which I've only really started doing properly recently because I was sharing within my team all the time and I was sharing within my organizations and sort of wider reach of those organizations professionally for quite a, a period of time. And then the PhD sort of forced me into publications and writing and that kind of side of things, which sort of creeps up on you when you're doing a PhD to the point where by the time you're submitting it to a journal, it kind of like, it, it feels like it's not a big thing anymore, really. <laughs> um, but when I, when I had to do the social media things, so I was on Twitter for a while and then I deleted my Twitter for a couple of years. And then I, I used Instagram barely at all. Um, and I had to recently when I was leaving academia and I thought, oh, now I'm just fully self-employed and consulting and stuff, kind of have to start building some sort of social media profile except I didn't have Twitter now because I deleted it and everyone on Instagram was my like friend or connection that kind of knew me and I felt like 
they weren't just anonymous people they could legitimately judge me like my sister could message me saying this is stupid what are you doing um <laughs> so I think for me it was like as small as it is for a lot of people but like professionalizing my social media to the point where like right now I'm going to post every single day I'm going to try and put something that's quite good quality together and it's going to be very worky and my friends and my family are just going to have to accept that they're going to like <laughs> receive all that for a little while and I think there was a lot a big kind kind of feeling like oh this could go horribly wrong like no one's gonna no one's gonna follow me no one's gonna like my posts no one's gonna do any of that stuff um and it, you know obviously it worked out absolutely fine and I think obviously important to say like social media isn't overly important I think sometimes people spend too much time on it but mm. at the same time I think if you want to put yourself out there it's it's a really important platform that I perhaps overlooked because mm. maybe I was being a bit snobby about it and saying oh it's not a paper or no it's not um you know something more substantial mm -hmm. great perspective last question if you uh, ran into the 18 year old guy who was just kind of discovering sport and what he might do in the future what would you say to him today yeah, I, I don't think I'd want to say anything because I wouldn't want to screw it up. Like, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm kind of happy with how things have gone so far. And obviously, we can all back, look back on our lives and think, oh, I wish I'd done that better or I wish I'd changed that. But ultimately, anything that you change is going to change who you end up being. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I kind of vaguely like who I am and I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to put me on the wrong path, you know? Awesome. I love that answer. That's great. Thank you very much. It's been uh, very nice to get to know you, Dan, and to uh, get, get some of your story. It's been very valuable. Yeah, no worries. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>